So Judges chapter 2, we'll be picking it up in verse 6 this week. If you would join me in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, we come to you weak and needy. We pray, O God, that you would work by your Holy Spirit to shine your light in our hearts, that you would cause us to see and behold the light of the glory of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in the Scripture. And as we behold him, we ask that we would be transformed to be increasingly like him from one degree of glory to another. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The God of the Bible, the one true God, is utterly unique. He is distinct. And there is no one like Him. As we open our Bibles and begin to read of who God is on the very first pages of Scripture, we see that He is the Creator God, distinct from His creation. He calls creation into existence by His powerful Word. As we keep reading our Bibles, as we encounter this amazing, glorious God, we see that He is the God of redemption. He is the God who saves His people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. It was the mightiest superpower in the ancient world. And He makes a mockery of all of the gods of Egypt as He delivers His people Israel. This God is awesome in His majesty. He is blazing in His purity. He is perfect in His righteousness. He is overwhelming in His love and mercy and grace. And there is none like Him Indeed, in the ancient world, it was very clear, there is none like this God. As the Israelite people came into the promised land that God had promised them, as they came into the land of Canaan, this was very evident. Because where they had come from in Egypt, they had seen many so-called gods, and they saw the one true God bring judgment upon those gods. Now they came into Canaan and this was a land that was also filled with many strange gods. There were so many gods you could take your pick. Uh, there were, for instance, gods like Chemosh and Molech who demanded human sacrifices, particularly Molech, who was a god with the head of a bull and with arms stretched out, who demanded child sacrifice, and people offered their children as burnt offerings to Molech. There were also goddesses, fertility goddesses like Asherah and Astarte, who were hypersexualized goddesses of fertility, whom it was believed were the reason why animals would bear offspring and why the crops would come. 
And then, of course, among the great pantheon of many Canaanite gods, there was the one who was everybody's favorite. And he was known as Baal. He was the local hero. Not only was he the local hero, he was also the local lover boy. He had a lot of female companions. And, and this god, Baal, it was believed, was the god of the weather, the storm god. He was the one who caused the rain to come. You know, he was always carousing with different female goddesses. Uh, you know, the Bible actually introduces this idea that was utterly unique in the ancient world, that was completely different from anything else people believed around them, that sexuality and sex was a human activity. That's unique to the Bible in the ancient world. All other religions believed that the gods were just like us and had these kinds of relations. And so as Israel being redeemed from Egypt and coming into the promised land of Canaan with these nations surrounding them and these gods on offer, they were faced with a choice. Were they going to serve Yahweh, the true God? Would they remain faithful to the one true God, the God of creation, the God of covenant, their Redeemer, their Lord? Or would they abandon Him and go after these other strange gods? Gods like Baal. I mean, it seems like a no-brainer. It seems like the choice is very clear, right? You choose the creator, not the local lover boy. But sadly, today's text, and in fact all of the book of Judges, leaves, leaves us in no doubt as to what they chose. The people of Israel abandoned the God of their fathers for the so-called gods of Canaan. How would God respond to their wickedness? As we continue to see Israel's spiral into idolatry, and as we look at Yahweh, the true God's surprising mercy, we should remember the two principles for interpreting the book of Judges that we learned last week. This is important for the entire book. First is that everything we see functions as examples for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 7 tells us, These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So Judges gives us examples. We also saw the second principle, Judges is a book of Christ-centered hope. Jesus says in Luke chapter 24 and verses 44, that all that was written in the former days, the law, the prophets and the writings, including the book of Judges, was written about Him. It's a book that points us to Him. Paul tells us that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we have hope. So this is a book that ought to give us hope. You see, friends, we have several points of correspondence, similarity with the people of Israel. Just like Israel was delivered from slavery in Egypt, we have experienced a great deliverance from slavery to Satan and sin and death. We have been brought into a covenant relationship with the living God, just like they were. We have experienced a far greater deliverance than they did. And just like they were faced with temptations from these many gods that surrounded them, we too are faced with temptations. We too are faced with the question, whom will you serve? 
Will we serve the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true and living God in Jesus Christ, or will we serve the gods of the nations? Whom will we serve? And who is it that will deliver us from the perils that we face? As we seek to answer those questions, as we behold Israel's descent into idolatry and evil, my prayer is that we would be alert, dear friends, to the dangers of idolatry and at the same time amazed at the grace and faithfulness of Yahweh who even in His wrath remembers mercy. As we go through our text this morning in answer to these questions, I want to give you three handles um, on the text. We're going to see first a faithless people. Then we'll see our faithful God. And then we'll see a fatal decline. Faithless people, faithful God, faithless, fatal decline. That's our outline. First, faithless people. Look at verse 6 and following. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Ereth, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So verse 6, the author takes us to the very end of Joshua's life. Joshua, this faithful leader, the successor to Moses, whom God had appointed to lead his people into the promised land, who had lived in faith, faithfulness, following after the Lord. He was a great warrior, a great military leader, a great man of faith who trusted God. And here his life comes to an end. Like I said, deaths of God's servant, servants in Scripture function like boundary events, taking us into a new phase. But you might read that and say, hey, wait a minute. I thought we already saw him already dead last week. At the start of chapter 1, verse 1, it said, after the death of Joshua. So now how come he's alive here again, alive and well? Like, did he, was he raised from the dead? What happened here? All right, was there some kind of mistake? What's going on? Well, what's happening is, this is kind of a repeat. All right? This is a repeat. You see, the way that the Hebrew literature functions is kind of like, Dolby surround sound, I've said this before. You, you have one speaker turn on and you hear something. Then you have the other speaker turn on and it's the same thing communicated in a different way. It, it's like instant replay, right? When you're watching uh, the football match and someone scores a goal and then there's an instant replay from a different angle. And you see the whole thing again. And you might see seven replays and think there were seven goals. No, it's one goal and you're just seeing it in different perspective. That's what's happening here. I, I, I told you the structure of the book of Judges. Uh, the book of Judges has two introductions and two conclusions 
and they both correspond to each other. So the first introduction corresponds to the last conclusion. The second introduction corresponds to the first conclusion. It's sort of like a sandwich. And then in between you have two cycles of all the major judges, uh, three of them each. All right. Uh, if you uh, want to see more about that structure, you can see it in your bulletin. I've given you the structure of judges there in your bulletin. Uh, you can look for that and look at it later and think about how the book is shaped. But here we are entering the second introduction of the book. It's a repeat introduction, giving us a different perspective on what we already saw in chapter 1. All right. Uh, and this second introduction now is kind of like a flashback in a movie. All right. It's taking us back, showing us everything in slow motion. And this now sets the program for everything that is to come in the book. All right. These two introductions explain everything that you will see in the rest of the book of Judges all the way to the end. And, and, and as Joshua dies, again, it's asking the question, what happens next? This man was faithful, the servant of the Lord. Uh, all of the elders with him had seen the great work that the Lord had done. They were faithful. What's next? How are things going to go with the next generation? And of course, the author gives us a very dark and foreboding preview of what's going to come, right? In verse 10. Look at what he says in verse 10. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. You know, the Lord has ordained families as the ways, as the way, primary way, for the knowledge of him to be passed from one generation to the next. It was very much so among the people of Israel. They were to teach and inculcate in each generation the knowledge of Yahweh, the one true and living God, their covenant God. And by the way, it doesn't say there that they did not know about the Lord. We should take this as referring to personal knowledge. Of course, they knew that he was the God who delivered them from Egypt, who had brought them through the wilderness, who had brought them into the promised land, even defeating mighty cities like Jericho and all of that. They knew about him. They did not know him. Nor did they have an appreciation of all that he did for them. That's what that phrase is intended to connote. They did not know the Lord. They were not in relation with him. They did not care who he was or what he had done. The uh, 19th century Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane once said this to his church. Changes are coming. Every eye before me shall soon be dim in death. Another pastor shall feed this flock. Another singer lead the psalm. Another flock shall fill this fold. It's a reminder of the swift passage of time, dear friends. Time is passing. We're not around forever. And as I think about that, you know, I turned 40 this past year. And I have begun to, just my, the Lord has begun to work in my heart to just grow increasingly this heartfelt concern for the next generation. For my own children. Will they know the Lord? Will all that we are saying and teaching them 
penetrate into their hearts. God, give them new hearts. Oh, how we cry out to God. I cry out to God for my own daughters, for all of the children in this congregation, for the teens in our midst. Does your heart burn with a concern for them? Are you burdened to see them know the Lord? I want to speak to the parents here. You know, the home is the primary place of discipleship that God has ordained. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul commands, especially fathers, raise your children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. I want to speak to the fathers here and ask, brothers, how's it going? Do you embrace the authority and the great responsibility that God has given you and placed in your life to instruct your children in the fear of the Lord, to teach them, to raise them, to know the Lord. Parents, is your life an example to your children? You know, the book of Judges will show us and teach us small sins in one generation become bigger and bigger in the generations to come. Sin escalates from one generation to the next. What do your children see in your lives? What are they seeing at home? What do they see about what you value, about what is dearest to your heart? You know, often parents suddenly act like it's some kind of shock when the kid goes off to university and doesn't go to church anymore or is not interested in the Lord anymore. Well, what did they see all of your life at home, all of their lives at home? And this is also imperative for us as a church. We have covenanted together. Our covenant says we will bring up children under our care in the training and instruction of the Lord. All of us, whether you're single, married, whatever it is, kids, no kids, all of us are responsible to set this example of witness before the coming generation, to teach them the ways and the word of Yahweh. Oh, that we would be found faithful in this task and that the Lord would save many children at a young age in our congregation, that they would grow up to be oaks of righteousness. So often, faithlessness in one generation or failure in one generation leads to absolute faithlessness and abandonment of true religion in the next generation. But that wasn't the case here. Actually, if you look at this, verse 7, Joshua and his generation were faithful. We can't lay the blame at their feet. Right? The people served the Lord, it says in verse 7, all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. Joshua himself was a servant of the Lord. They were faithful. And yet, their faithfulness didn't translate into the next generation. It gave way to a faithless generation. That sometimes happens as well. You know, uh, my, one of my mentors, Tom Schreiner, was here last month. He's now going to be 70 years old. And uh, he was talking to me about, you know, the concern that he has for the coming generations of evangelicals. He said, the, often it is the case that the first generation right, is excited about the truth. The second generation accepts the truth, merely accepts the truth, and the third generation totally abandons the truth. That's often the case. I want to speak to the kids here and the teens. Let it not be so with you. As you look at this generation who did not know the Lord in the book of Judges, it was their choice. It was not the failure of their parents who served the Lord. It was their choice to abandon the way of their fathers. They did not know the Lord because they chose 
not to know the Lord because they harden their hearts against the Lord. And so I want to plead with you, dear children. I want to plead with you, dear teenagers who are sitting here in our midst this morning. Know the Lord. Know the Lord. I, I want to stand before you today and in the place of Christ appeal to you. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, dear children. Come to Jesus, dear teens. Turn away from your sin. Don't harden your heart. He is your only hope in this difficult and dark world. Flee to Him. He is a refuge for you. He will not turn you away. Come to Jesus. Know the Lord. Put your trust in Him. I want you kids to grow up with your faith being your own, not just doing whatever mommy, daddy said, but knowing the Lord yourself with a fire and flame in your faith, with a passion in your heart, with a love for Jesus, oh, that the Lord would give that to you. Ask Him for a new heart that loves Him and burns with a passion for His glory. This generation, verse 10, did not know the Lord. What was the result of their failure to know the, not know the Lord? Look at verses 11 to 15. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. You know this contrast. Do you see the contrast there between the previous generation and the current generation? Verse 7 says, the people served Yahweh all the days of the life of Joshua. The next generation served, verse 11, served the Baals. Verse 13, they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. They did not know Yahweh and the work that he did. And verse 11, listen to that indictment. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. By the way, that becomes kind of a theme verse for the book of Judges. It's repeated uh, six more times, and it is repeated every time a new major judge is introduced. The people of Israel did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. The people of Israel did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. They again did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. They do it again and again, until when you come to the end of the book, there's a, there's a new refrain that shows up. They did what was right in their own eyes. Now it's not even in reference to the Lord anymore. Now they're doing whatever they want. They think, think what they're doing is right, but they don't care what the Lord thinks about it. How did they do what was evil? Did you notice? They abandoned, look at verse 12. They abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God who brought them out of Egypt. Verse 13, again, they abandoned the Lord. They had sort of a gospel amnesia. They didn't care that He was the God who brought them out of Egypt. They didn't rehearse these things or believe these things. And their amnesia led to apostasy and an abandonment of God altogether. Friends, when we lose sight of God and His grace, we lose a sense of our obligation to Him. And eventually we abandon Him. This is why it's so important to be anchored to the past. Anchored to the truth that is in Scripture. Anchored to the truth that has resonated all throughout church history. You see, our memories can grow weak. And that's why it must be reinforced by repeated teachings and reminders. This is why we take the Lord's Supper as a reminder 
of what God has done for us. This is why we confess our faith through creeds. We're confessing the truth that has stood the test of time. These people's amnesia led to apostasy, and then their apostasy led to idolatry. All out, full-blown idolatry. Did you see that? Verse 11. Notice how many times he uses the word served. Verse 11, they served the Baals. Verse 13, they served Baal and Ashtoreth. Verse 19, they went to serve the other gods. Chapter 3 and verse 6, they served the gods of the Canaanites. Not only did they serve these gods, they walked after these gods. Verse 12, they walked after, the Hebrew text literally leads, they walked after other gods. It's again in verse 19, they walked after other gods. Not only did they serve these other gods and walk after these other gods, they stooped so low as to bow down with their faces to the ground. They bowed down to these other gods. Verse 12, they bowed down to other gods. Again in verse 17, they bowed down to other gods. Verse 19, they bowed down to other gods. As they begin serving these gods, they walk after these gods, they bow down to these gods. Ultimately, they come under the power of these gods. They become subject to these gods. They're controlled by these gods. And their idolatry has led to a sort of slavery. As one person said, Sin is not merely an action that you do or fail to do. Something that you choose to do or not to do. Sin is a power that holds you in its grip. That's what happened to them. They became slaves to their sin and to these false gods. And you might even wonder, how could this happen? I mean, think about the contrast between these gods. Yahweh, the one true and living God, the creator, the redeemer, there is none like him. They abandon him to go and serve the gods of these fertility cults, hypersexualized statues of Baal and Ashtate. How? Where's the logic in this? Well, sin is always illogical, isn't it? But on the other hand, you've got to think about this. Baal was the god of the weather. He's the one who made it rain. And then in, in a place where you depend on agriculture for your living, yeah, the crops begin to grow. Things will go well. Astarte was the god of fertility. They believe that she makes the animals have babies and gives, gives babies to human beings. And, and, and these Israelites, they're coming in from the desert in, into a land where they now have to practice agriculture with no former experience, they're looking at these Canaanites and they say, oh, it seems like it's going well for them. You know, they have crops, they have animals, they worship these gods, uh, everything seems good. These were the gods that promised prosperity, you see. Let's go worship them. Maybe it'll go well for us. We don't want a Yahweh who commands us to be holy. We want a Baal that we can manipulate so that we can be happy. And you might hear that and say, oh, well, pastor, a, a sexualized statue which promises crops and fertility doesn't really appeal to me. It's not a temptation for us. Well, friends, if that's what you think, then you're missing the point. You see, you may not go after a Baal statue, but here in Abu Dhabi, here in the UAE, there's a great number of Baals alive and well, ready to lure your heart away from the living God. And it happens gradually. 
right? That's another part of the story of Judges. You don't just wake up one morning and say, ah, I'm not, you know, not going to worship Jesus anymore. I'm going after Baal. That's not what the Israelites did. It was gradual, kind of gradual assimilation into the culture that surrounded them. Slowly losing their faith, their religion, piece by piece, little by little. And we're in danger of this too. You see, friends, I've said this over and over again, and, and we should know this. An idol is not just something made of gold or wood or stone with a funny name like Baal. The biblical definition of idolatry is much broader than that. It's any belief or any love that draws our hearts away from the living God and His truth. Anything that we rely upon more than relying upon the one true God is an idol. As Tertullian said, all sins are found in idolatry and idolatry is found in all sins. As John Calvin famously said, the human heart is an idol factory constantly churning out idols for us to worship. So think about this. When living in Abu Dhabi, think about this. I, I love uh, this You know, one pastor, Tim Keller, he said this. If a believer lives in a city where commerce is not just a practice, but a functional God, providing people with identity and security, the danger is that the Christian maintains his, his or her doctrinal belief and religious practices, but divides heart worship between the Lord and money or career. End quote. Just like Israel came into this foreign land and then slowly assimilated into the worship of that land. You know, all of us have come here to the UAE with all kinds of dreams and ambitions and hopes. We're in danger too. I want to ask you this morning, what is your Baal? You know what I'm talking about. What's your Baal? One pastor suggests that we do this. Take a, take a good look at our lives. If you want to diagnose the answer to that question, take a good look at our lives. Do an audit of your life. Look at our families. Look at our money. Look at our careers. Look at our possessions. Look at our ambitions, our relationships, our time, and so on and so forth. And then ask two questions. As you look at all areas of your life, ask these two questions. Question number one. Am I willing to do whatever God says in this area? Even if he says, cut out, pluck out, break it up, let it go. Am I willing to do whatever he says? And question number two, am I willing to accept whatever God sends in this area? Whether it's trial or affliction or hardship or the taking away of something that I hold dear. If the answer to any one of those questions is no, friend, that has become a Baal in your life. See, the worship of Yahweh and the worship of Baal cannot coexist in our hearts. There is no neutral. All right? You can't serve Yahweh and Baal at the same time. You cannot serve God and wealth, as Jesus said. You will abandon Yahweh and sell yourself to Baal. There is no neutral. And so we're faced with these choices, the choices between paganism and the God of the Bible. Paganism says, pick and choose the God you worship. Pick and choose the area you need blessing. And then go there and serve that. The worshiper is in control. The Bible says something different. The God of the Bible doesn't say, okay, just show up on Sundays and that's enough for me. No, Yahweh demands lordship over all of your life. Your money, 
He demands authority over your marriage or your singleness, over your sexuality, over your friendships, your relationships. He has authority over your iPhone, over your leisure, over your hobbies, your work, over your life. Make no mistake, who or what you serve will enslave you. As I said earlier, sin is not merely an action that you do or fail to do. It is a power that holds you in its grip. Notice what happened to them. They walked after. They served. They bowed down. Look at the word that is used in verse 17. They whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They prostituted themselves to other gods. The metaphor of being a prostitute here is used of serving an idol. And a false God. You see, Yahweh, the one true and living God, had brought these people into a relationship to Him that was akin to a marriage. It was a covenant relationship like marriage, where He loved them with all of His being. What did they do? They committed adultery. They prostituted themselves to these false gods. And that's what happens with an idol, isn't it? You enter into an intense relationship with it. It begins to control you. It uses you, but it does not care for you. You become a slave to it. And finally, it destroys you. The people of Israel became enslaved to Baal and Ashtoreth and these false gods. How did Yahweh, their Lord, respond? We saw a faithless people. Now we see an amazing Amazingly faithful God. Verses 14 to 18. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned, as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. First we see there, that the Lord is faithful in wrath. He is faithful in wrath. In verse 12 it said, They provoked the Lord to anger. Here again it says in verse 14, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. It, it repeats that in verse 20. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And you look at that and you say, Ah, oh, did God get angry with them? Does he get angry? I thought he was a God of love and grace and mercy. And there is no anger with God. Oh dear friends, his wrath, his anger is the expression of his love and faithfulness. You see, the God of the Bible is loyal. He is faithful. Like I said, he enters into a relationship with his people which is like a marriage. And, and when a spouse is unfaithful in a marriage, it's right to be angry. It's right to feel grieved. And anger concerning that. No, Yahweh loves His people with an everlasting love. He is a jealous God. He will tolerate no rivals. And so the Lord responded by disciplining them for their evil. Did you see that? They sold themselves to Baal. So God sells them. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies. Verse 14. Because the people do evil, God's hand rests against them for harm. Verse 15, you see that he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies. And then verse 15 says, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. The hand of their enemies is the hand of the Lord doing harm to them. You see what these people had done? They had made God their enemy. 
His anger was against them in hostility. And he made life miserable for them. They were in terrible distress. And by the way, none of this was some capricious, sudden action on the part of God. This is what he had always promised would happen. This is what the Lord swore to them. He is being faithful to his part of the covenant. If you go back to the book of Deuteronomy and read it, you'll see again and again that God promises that if they break covenant with him, if they go after other gods, that he will be against them in anger and will bring enemies upon them. That's why verse 15 says, it's as the Lord had warned, as the Lord had sworn to them. And in reality, God could have said enough. He could have destroyed them immediately. immediately. And yet, we see the compassionate, merciful heart of God towards undeserving sinners and rebels. Not only is He faithful in justice and wrath, He is also faithful and overflowing in mercy. He shows them mercy. We see him show them mercy through deliverers whom he raises up, right? Read verses 16 and following. Then the Lord raised up judges. Notice who raises up these judges. They're not just some guys who kind of take the initiative and show up. No, the Lord raises them up. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he, that is the Lord, the Lord saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. You know, read the end of verse 15, and it says, they were in terrible distress. And then verse 16 says, the Lord raised up judges. You know what you, you and I might expect? What we might expect is they were in terrible distress and so they repented and they came to God and they asked His help and then the Lord raised up judges. But that's not what it is. No. They were in distress and the Lord takes the initiative. He has mercy and compassion upon them even in their unrepentant, miserable, afflicted state. It tells us this in verse 18. The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who had afflicted and oppressed them, looking upon the terrible condition of his people, looking upon their groaning, he was moved. And there we see a picture of the overwhelming, merciful, compassionate heart of God. He is blazing in his holiness and wrath and still tender and warm in his mercy and compassion, not because of anything in this people, not because of anything that they had done to serve him, but purely out of his own grace. He sent deliverers to help them. It's kind of like a new exodus taking place all over again. The language used here reminds us of the book of Exodus. The people were groaning under the hand of the enemy. And then God raised up deliverers. Just like He raised up Moses, He raises up these judges. But then how do they respond? Just like in the exodus, after God delivered them, they went hoarding after this golden calf. Here, they go hoarding after these other gods. They did not listen to their judges. They hoed after the other gods and bowed down to them. They turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked. In fact, they go from bad to worse. Verse 19 says, Whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods. And even in the Lord's response again, we continue to see His mercy, not only through deliverance, but through testing. Through testing and discipline. Look at verses 20 
and onward. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers, and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. Chapter 2 and verse 20, the people's repeated sin. Now God says, this people, that phrase there, this people, is the word that is used not for God's covenant people. There's a different Hebrew word for that. This is the word that is used for like nations just like the other pagan nations. They've become just like the other pagan nations, in other words, is what God says. This people have transgressed my covenant. And he says, I will no longer drive out any of them, uh, before them, any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. That picks up from last week. Do you remember? At the end of uh, last week's passage, we saw that the people had failed, they had compromised, and so God says, now I'm done. I'm not going to help you. And yet he shows mercy. He's testing them by leaving these nations there. Even this unfinished work of driving out the nations, God is going to use to test his people. What does a test do? A test evaluates us and trains us, do you see? The, the presence of these enemies in their midst, these nations, would reveal Israel's hearts, whether they would be truly loyal to the Lord. The presence of the enemies, as one person said, would force them to consider their relationship to the Lord, His covenant, their failures, and what He calls them to. The Lord also uses these enemies to train His people to rely on Him in war. Did you see that? It says that the generations of this people of Israel might know war. Now, that doesn't mean He's giving them some kind of military education, okay? By having these other nations, they're going to have practice in how to fight. In fact, if you read the battles of Israel, you'll see that they adopted military tactics which were really strange, right? Not, not what any victorious army should adopt. They're always going in as the minority. They're always going in with strange tactics. No, this was not military education. War would test Israel's faith in God, whether they would rely on Him to fight their battles for them. It would train them to obey His commands, to put to death their enemies. It was a test to see whether or not they would keep His commands, how they would wage war. And so even these trials and circumstances in their life are used by the Lord in His mercy to test and train His people. And it's so often the case with us, isn't it? That the afflictions that we face, the trials that we face, even the consequences often of our own sin, God uses to test us, to train us, to refine us. And so we see here the depth, the deep, deep love of Yahweh for His people. Are you not amazed at the depths of God's mercy? That He would not cast away His people, even in their repeated failures, even in their apostasy, in their affliction and distress. He comes to their rescue. He shows mercy even in judgment. But all of that, sadly, was to no avail. 
Because the story of the rest of Judges and the rest of the Old Testament, dear friends, is that Israel failed the test. So we saw a faithless people. We've seen a faithful God. Now we see a fatal decline. A fatal decline. Did you see their response to the Lord's test? Chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. This kind of intermarriage and assimilation was fatal. In fact, it was a direct disobedience to God's command in Deuteronomy 7. Listen to what God said in Deuteronomy 7 verses 3 and 4. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Now I read a news article about Colombia recently. Um, and this is about hippos in Colombia. So apparently in the 1970s, the drug lord, Pablo Escobar, uh, had a collection of exotic animals and he brought over four hippos from Africa, one male and three female. And over the years, those hippos have multiplied gradually. There's hundreds of them apparently now. Uh, they are a pest and threat to crops. They are a hazard to human life. There have been people injured and hurt. Uh, they're dangerous uh, when you're driving on the highway because sometimes you'll hit a hippo. Uh, they have polluted the water supply because hippo waste has caused toxic bacteria to seep into the waters. The fish are dying. And it costs millions of dollars apparently to try and figure out a solution to this. It's kind of what happened here with Israel. These Canaanites became like Pablo Escobar's hippos in their lives, a toxic source of devastation. See, their apostasy led into idolatry, their idolatry led into slavery, and their slavery ultimately led them into a sort of perversity. Did you see the people's behavior in response to Yahweh's grace? Verse 17, they did not listen to their judges, for they hoard after other gods and bowed down to them. Verse 19, whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. What you worship, you will become just like what you worship. And that plays true in Israel's life. They, they worship deaf idols, they become deaf like the idols. They worship corrupt and perverse idols. They behave corrupt and perverse. And then they become hardened like idols. They become stubborn and unable to let go of their ways. And they keep going from bad to worse. And it's going to be shocking for you as you read the book of Judges just how bad they become. You see, this verse here is very key. It shows us the descending spiral of Israel's sin. Have you ever seen water kind of swirling and going down the drain? And it goes in circles, but it keeps going further and further down. That's what happens with Israel. There's this repeated cycle that takes place in the book of Judges. Four words. Disobedience. They're disobedient to God. Distress. God gives them over to their enemies. They face great distress. Deliverance. God raises up a judge, a deliverer to deliver them. But then after the judge dies, they turn back. And they become more corrupt, decline. So disobedience, distress, deliverance, decline. 
That's the story of the entire book of Judges. And it keeps going downwards, down the drain. Keep, things keep getting worse as you keep reading the book. Initially, they're calling on Yahweh in their distress. Later in the book, they stop calling on him at all. The, the judges themselves get worse. Each of those judges are flawed. They're sinners. By the time you come to the end of the book, Samson is the worst of them all. The situation keeps getting worse. Just read the last four chapters. No, those judges, those saviors, those deliverers, dear friends, could not deliver these people ultimately because the judges themselves were sinners in need of a savior. And so this repeated downward spiral of sin continues because they didn't just need salvation from enemies on the outside, they needed salvation from the greatest enemy, which is on the inside. They needed salvation from their sin. Who would put an end to their endless spiral? We need an Israel who would be obedient. We need a judge, a deliverer who will not die and let the people slip back into sin. Who will not fail. We need a king who will establish God's law and lead the people in loyalty to God. You see, in this respect, we are so similar to Israel, aren't we? The greatest danger that we face is not enemies on the outside, but sin on the inside. We need a deliverer who will save us, not just from enemies, but from our own sin. We need a savior who will be our king and lead us in the ways of God. For all who are helplessly caught in the endless descending spiral of sin, in slavery to the cycle of sin, like Paul, we can cry out, the good that I want to do, I do not do. And the evil that I don't want to do is what I do. Wretched man that I am, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from the body of this death? And scripture screams out the answer through the book of Judges and all the way through the New Testament. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The, the Lord looked upon us in our distress, in our groaning, in our misery and our sin. He sent us a deliverer, a judge, a king, his own son. Not one who would be a sinner like these other judges who would be a sinner just like the rest of us, but one who would take upon himself our sin and stand as a substitute for us in every way like us, yet without sin. He didn't send us a deliverer, a judge who would die and let us slip back into sin. No, he sent us one who would die for our sin, defeating our sin and death forever. He sent us a deliverer who rose from the dead, victorious over all the enemies of God, who would set us free from sin and death. And so friends, if you don't know that Savior, if you find yourself caught in the endless spiral and cycle of your sin in slavery to the gods that you worship, I want to call you to this Savior, this Deliverer, this King, who will give you forgiveness of sins and eternal life today through His blood. Jesus delivers us from our sin. C.S. Lewis once said, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Brothers and sisters, dear friends, the question for you this morning is, whom do you serve? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for so great a Savior in our Lord Jesus Christ. May our hearts be faithful and loyal to him always. Serving him, bowing down to him alone. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.